Hey, and welcome to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. At Cows, we like to keep things simple. We are committed to verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible to help people know, love, and become fully committed followers of Jesus. It is our prayer and hope that this message challenges, encourages, and equips you to that end. Welcome along, everyone. Uh, it's good to sit here and, and share from the Word this Sunday uh, with you guys. Um, for those of you who don't know me, I uh, see a couple of new faces. Uh, I'm Daniel. I've uh, been coming here for about close on six years, I'd say, um, and we loved our time here at Fellowship. Uh, my wife's Alicia and I've got two boys, Ezekiel and, and Travis. So yeah, I've been a part of this fellowship and it's been good. So look, uh, for those of you who haven't been following, we've been going through uh, the minor prophet there of Malachi, and our general theme is God's covenantal faithfulness. So John set that up for us in, in week one. Um, last week, uh, Dave uh, took us through um, into up to chapter 2, verse 16, um, and he looked at three things, and that was disunity, idolatry, and divorce, and the way, um, you know, that has caused problems for the people of Israel. So basically the way that it's been working through, through Malachi as well is God has been bringing these um, disputes or issues to the nation of Israel, and more particularly to, to the Levites um, as well. So today we're we're gonna we're gonna cover through to verse twelve of, of chapter three, um, and we're starting in in verse seventeen of chapter two. Uh, today we're gonna look at the fourth and the fifth sort of accusation or dispute that God has with with the nation of Israel, and um, yeah, they're they're pretty big ones. It's Malachi is not always the the lightest of. Um, books to, to read through, but I think there's some good stuff in there in there for us uh, that we can learn and, and we can take home. Um, the, the first dispute um, that we'll look at is starting in, in verse 17 through to 3, 5, um, in which the, the people of Israel basically accuse God of being unjust, right? Um, and we also get a, a powerful image of this messenger of the covenant, so we're going to touch on that a bit as well. Then the second dispute um, is going to be in verses 6 through 12 of chapter 3. And um, in this one, God uh, basically reiterates, in a sense, his covenant or reminds the people of Israel of his covenant with them. Um, and he brings out this, uh, this issue of their tithes and their offerings to him. So we'll, that's what we'll be looking at. Um, and I've titled uh, today's sermon, The Heart of a Nation. So we'll see the way that God brings that out. Uh, let's pray and then we'll, we'll read the text together and, and get stuck in. Lord God, uh, thank you so much uh, for your word. Thank you for, for your faithfulness to us. Lord God, I pray that as we, as we study this together today and see what you have to say to us, Lord, I pray that we would have open hearts and minds to receive uh, that which you would have to teach us. God, I know I've been challenged in, in my study uh, of this passage, Lord, so yeah, God, I pray that you would be honoured um, and your people would be blessed as well. Amen. So let's read there. If you want to open up to, to Malachi chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 17. And we'll read through to verse 12 of chapter 3. It says, 
You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Verse 1 of chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like the refiner's fire and the fullest soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. Then they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you by judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and, contribu and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, said the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is more no, no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fall to, fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed evildoers. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. So we'll just be going to, to verse 12. But let's start with this first dispute here, starting in uh, verse 17 of chapter 2. So what dispute does, does God bring against them, right? God begins with a statement as per the pattern of, of Malachi, and then basically quotes the people of Israel to, to prove his point. And if you've got children here, especially ones that can speak, you might know this bit of back and forth, right? Uh, the parent says, for example, you spoke unkindly to your brother. The child says, I didn't say anything mean. The parent says, you said dot, dot, dot. That was unkind. And so it goes on and on. You know, you know the, the story. And this is a little bit of, of what's going on here. God's telling, showing the people what they're doing, right? And I think verse 17 for us, especially in this first dispute, and it carries actually right to the end, is quite key, right? Because it shows here the heart of the people of Israel. It shows where they're at. 
All right. So let's look look at a couple things, and we'll look at four things in this start. So Israel try and act like they have done nothing wrong. That's one. Two, they think that God is basically corrupted. Three, they say that God sides with the wicked. And four, this leads to thinking that God is not just. So firstly, Israel try and act like they have done nothing wrong. Israel are in denial, right? The Lord has told them of their sin. And God says to them, as we read, that it's wearisome to him. And as we also read, the people speak with one another. And what do they say? How have we wearied God? Us? No. Like, we haven't done that. So friends, when a nation or individual is in denial of their sin, there is no repentance or reformation. If you go to 1 John 1.8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This leads to them basically thinking, if you're, if you're looking there at verse 17, that God is corrupted, right? After denying the wrongs, they say, well, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. This is common, I don't think, just for a, a nation or the people of Israel at this time, but for, for many individuals, right? I think it shows that Israel is aware of their sins and their fault, and they want to shift that. They want to shift that blame. I don't know if you feel that sometimes when the pressure's on you and you know you've done something wrong. But here we see that the people of Israel want to shift the blame. And not just to another person or another nation, but they're trying to shift it back on God, right? When a nation or individual points the finger and does not own what they have done, again, there will be no repentance or reformation. Friends, again, we just move one verse, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Next, what, what's the pattern there in verse 17? They said that God actually sides with the wicked. Not only does he approve of it, they're saying that God is siding with them. I think it takes it even a, a bit further. Um, Exodus 34, 6 through 7 says this, The Lord, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving devotion and faithfulness, maintaining loving devotion to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin. Yet he will be, by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So Israel have forgotten basically the character of God by putting this accusation on him. The people of Israel are saying that God, the God that rescued them from Egypt, took them out of slavery, led them into the land. This God, who's declared his very character and nature, as we just read in Exodus 34, he's changed. This God actually delights in the wicked and their wickedness. You can see the extent that they're going here. When a nation turns their back on the very nature of who God is, there will be no repentance and reformation. This leads us to, to point four there in verse 17. The last statement God quotes Israel saying is, where is this God of justice? And you can see where this thinking has, has led, right? Israel feels a bit hard done by. Israel believes that they have done no wrong. 
Israel wants to point the finger at God for the wrongs that they've done. And then Israel believes that God actually favours the wicked, which leads their thinking down to believing that the God of justice is no longer around. Where is he? Friends, when a nation no longer sees God for who he truly is, and they believe he does not exist, or I think even worse, believe that he is unjust, they leave no room for repentance and reformation. So where does this leave us? I feel like that's a heavy start for us there in verse 17, to see where the heart of this nation actually lies. Just this one verse has, has shown us the condition of the priesthood, the condition of the nation of Israel. But we have God continuing to speak through Malachi and bring these accusations to them. But encouragingly and importantly, God has a plan and that plan is for redemption, repentance and reformation. He has a plan for this nation of Israel. So what, what is God's plan? What is his solution to this mess that they seem to be in? Let's read in, in chapter 3 again. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be so swift witness to the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. As we get in here, I, I want to read a, a couple verses and this might bring some clarity about who we're talking about at the start there of verse 3. So Matthew 11, 7 through 10 says, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. And Isaiah 40 verse 3 says, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert a highway for our God. So there are two messengers here, right, at the start of chapter 3. One prepares the way, and the other is a messenger of the covenant. So messenger 1, as, as we just read, uh, is John the Baptist, whom prepared the way for Christ, the messenger of the covenant who we believe is Jesus himself. So there, there is two, two views on, on this and two fulfilments, but we'll, we'll sort of get into that as we go. Um, but we're going to be mainly focusing on, on the first one. Okay. So 
let's look. So in this time here, right, between the, the Testaments, between the Old and the New, there's, what, about 400 years and what we call the intertestamental period, right, basically the time between the two Testaments. So imagine hearing this from, from Malachi, right, at the time, that there will be a messenger to prepare the way and the Lord himself is going to come to the temple. From what we have already heard and studied here in, in Malachi, there is a lot to be done in the temple with the priests because there's these accusations, you know, that God is bringing to them. So this message was here for about 400 years before we have John show up. In this 400 years, there wasn't nothing happening. Israel wasn't just quiet. There was quite a lot happening. So Israel slash Judah was ruled in turn by the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Syrians, and then the Romans, with a brief period of self-rule by the Hasmoneans, right? So when we get to the New Testament, the, the Romans are in the rule. The Old Testament in this 400 uh, years was translated into the Greek version, which we call the Septuagint, uh, which is a version when quoted in the New Testament that's most used. Uh, this period also saw the rise of the Pharisees and Sadducees and an increase in the influence of the scribes. So a lot was happening, and all the while this message was sitting here, right? So what is this, what is this messenger of the covenant going to do? We see here he's going to refine. So as well, as we get into this refining, he's going to do, he's going to send, he's going to refine, and he's going to judge. The way he does it is he starts, right, with, with the priests. It is directed firstly to the Levites and their practice in the temple. The first two chapters of, of Malachi have been speaking out mostly against the priesthood. But as we'll, as we'll see here, God ends up turning to judgment in a more general sense of the nation of Israel, not just specifically to the priests. God here provides an answer to the problem that is coming up with the priesthood. And like a silver or a goldsmith refines their precious metal or the way soap cleanses and washes the impurities from cloths, so this messenger of the covenant will do with the priesthood. God wants nothing short of a pure and clean priesthood that offers true sacrifices to God, leading with a good and godly example. So what did this refining look like? So again, most, most schools of thought is that this messenger of the covenant and this passage here, particularly in 3, 1 through 4 slash 5, is done in two, two stages. So in Christ's first advent when he came and died on the cross and in his second advent when he's due to come again and make all things new and right. For today's purposes, we're mainly going to be focused on that first advent when Christ came. But I'd encourage you to do a bit of study and, and see what that looks like in the big picture. But we will touch brief, briefly on that second advent. So John the Baptist, right, prepared the way for Jesus. Jesus, the Messiah, the King of the Jews. So what does the refining look like that Jesus, the messenger of the covenant, did when he came? So I have five quick examples there of what that looked like when Jesus came 
Jesus came and he showed time after time the issue was with the heart and not just the outward expression. You can read through the Beatitudes uh, and see that. He time and time again shows that what you're doing on the outside is a result of what's in the heart. Secondly, Jesus went to the temple, right? If you remember in Matthew 21, 12 through 13, and Mark 11, 15 through 18, and he overturned the, the tables and the money changers there. And he was showing them how far that they had come in their temple worship of true worship to God, true offering to him. Jesus's main gripe, thirdly, was with the spiritual leaders of the time. You can look at Jesus's rebuke in, in Matthew 23 of, of the Pharisees there. He goes through and he lists thing after thing, showing them that their heart was far from him, right? And anytime the discussions came up in the street, it was always between Jesus and the religious leaders. It was this back and forth, right? Fourthly, Jesus spoke of the temple being torn down and he would rebuild it in three days, John 2, 19, showing that there will be a new way in which man will approach God. And finally, Jesus said he is building us believers up to be a spiritual and a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to the Lord, 1 Peter 2, 5. So that's some of the ways in which Jesus, in his first coming, showed that he was purifying. Some of the ways he purified by addressing the heart problem of the nation again and by bringing it to the religious leaders of the time. He also showed us that he was bringing in a new way, a new covenant, a new way to approach God. So if we look at the second advent, of Christ and the way this falls into this picture. So again, most believe this was not fulfilled completely in Jesus's first coming. And they say that because what Israel didn't, at the end of that, what did they do? They didn't delight in this messenger of the covenant, did they? They didn't offer true and whole sacrifices to Jesus, to God, did they? They crucified him. But friends, we can be confident that Christ will come again. And I want to read to you this amazing passage from Revelation 21, 22 through 27. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honour of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life." In his first coming, Jesus showed the heart was the issue, leading to poor practice in worship of God. Jesus came to purify and refine the priesthood and to institute a new covenant with Jesus Christ as the head, the great high priest. 
through whom you and I can be made pure, whom we can be grafted into that vine. Jesus loves his people and he knows that on our own, we can never meet the standards required to be wholly pure that he's asking for here. This is why God himself, this messenger of the new covenant, took on flesh and came to meet us. He came to put himself and be that pure sacrifice. And friends, he will also return again in the second coming, which I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to all things being made new and being made right. So what happens next? God moves from, he sent his messengers, the one to prepare the way, the messenger of the covenant. Then he's done some refining. And now what's next? He's going to judge. In 3 verse 5, he talks and he lists out a few things that he's going to judge. But there's a few statements here that really stood out to me when, when I was reading them. So the first one there is draw near to you for judgment. And the second one is to be a swift witness. So I think if we draw our minds back to to verse 17 again, I'll just read it. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So the nation of Israel think God is unjust and and they wonder where he is. But then we get verse 5 here. And Israel, because they're saying, where is God? And God says, I'm going to draw near in judgment. Israel seem to think that God isn't doing anything. And God says, you know what? I'm going to be a swift witness against you. Israel say that God delights in the wicked and, and what they do, God says, I will come in judgment against what? The sorcerers, the adulterers, those who swear falsely, those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the, those who oppress the widow and the fatherless, those who trust, thrust aside the sojourner. And then if he wasn't clear enough, he says, just those who don't fear me. Right? All these things that God is bringing judgment against are things that he had already laid out for them in the Mosaic law, right? Friends, Israel thought they knew better than God. The Levites thought that they could get away with whatever they wanted to. And we'll see that a bit more uh, in our next dispute. They thought that they could live however they wanted to. And God answers them directly through Malachi the messenger, saying, I will send my messenger... I will refine you and I will come in judgment. So that's the, that's the first dispute that we have there in Malachi. And what is, what's the key for us? What do, what do we take away in that? And I think it's this. I think it's that God desires that we would live lives of pure sacrifice to him. Honouring him in word and deed so that we can what? Represent him well. And also that God loves us too much to leave us and let us continue in our ways. He loves us too much not to come and refine us and judge us. And that's what he's doing with his people of Israel. He's pointing out to them and he's trying to get them to see through this question and answer, look guys, this is what you're saying. This is how you're living. 
He loves us. He wants to refine us. He wants us to be a pure people. So that's dispute one. Now we get to the fifth dispute that we've been through so far. So tithes and offerings, right? Bit of an interesting one. Don't worry, we're not going to spend as much time here as we did on the first one. But God finishes off the previous section by outlining his plan to send, refine, and judge with the nation of Israel. Then we get verses 6 and 7. And God comes in and he reminds Israel of who he is, who they are, and the covenant that he has with them. How so? Let's just, we'll read it there, verses 6 and 7. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? So there's a few things that, that stood out to me as I read it. The first one is, I, the Lord, do not change. Secondly, children of Jacob. Thirdly, return to me and I will return to you. And lastly, this term, Lord of hosts. So I just want to read a few passages for you that I think would have been brought to their mind as God is saying this. So God's telling them this, and remember, in this culture, that would be most of their, their scriptures and everything is by memory and by listening. So as God's saying this, as Malachi's saying this for God, these scriptures should have come to their mind. So I just want to read a few. So the first one, I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and, he, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfil it? They're hearing this, and these scriptures are coming to mind. Secondly, children of Jacob. He's reminding them of who they are as a nation and who he is as God. Genesis 28, 13 through 15. Behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the Lord, the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you, your offspring shall, uh, sorry, and in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Bringing to mind that phrase, by using that phrase, children of Jacob, he's reminding them of the promises to them. Next, return to me, and I will ret return to you. Hosea 6.1 says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. Or maybe even the words of, of Malachi's contemporary, Zechariah 3.1. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, and this can play into our next one as well. Thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. 
And lastly, to carry on from that, that phrase, the Lord of hosts. Then David said to the Philistines, 1 Samuel 17, 45, You come to me with sword and with a spear and with javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So again, in essence, God is bringing to mind for Israel the promises he has made to their fathers, making sure that they know what God has said and what he will do. And not only this, he brings to them who he is and who Israel is as a nation before them, before him. This fifth dispute, God begins this dispute by bringing these things to mind for them. And what is the response of the people and what is the issue that God raises with them? Tithes and contributions. Interesting. I was thinking about this. Why this issue after what you've just said, God? And then I thought back to sort of where Israel is at at the moment. What's, what's happening for them at this point? So they're about 100 years this is about 100 years after the Jews had returned from their 70-year exile um, in Babylon. It's about 80 years after the temple was rebuilt and about 10 years after Nehemiah had finished rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem. And just FYI, I think we should do Nehemiah as our next book at church. I think that'd be fun. Um, so what's happening with, with Israel? What's their sort of state of mind at the moment. So Israel was no longer captive by their enemy, right? Israel had the place in which they met with God rebuilt. Israel had the protection and safety of the walls around their city. And what was the result from all this? They became ignorant to their sin by saying, will man rob God and how have we robbed you? And secondly, they became artificial in their worship by withholding what was due God. The people of Israel's persistence in sin had led them to be blinded to it. And in turn, their outward action of giving to God as an act of worship had been turned into this chore and half-hearted action. Again, the God we serve doesn't just leave us there in our sin, but he provides an option for us, a way out, right? Again, God provides a solution for the people. Malachi 3, 10 through 11, what, is he, what does he ask of them? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Amazing. It just blows me away. God, God brings this issue to them, right? and says, you're, you're holding back from me. This is the problem, but this is the solution, right? 
See, what was given to the Lord at the temple was was also used to provide for other people as well. You can read that in Deuteronomy uh, 26, 12 through 13. So Israel is not only robbing the Lord, but they're robbing each other of what's due each other. If you go back to verse 5 of the things that, that God points out that he will judge, what were some of those things? That he's going to judge those who oppress the widow and the fatherless. So the people robbed God by not giving their full tithe and offering, which was in turn used to, to provide for others as well. They robbed each other of what was due to them. And God says that those, those are some of the things that I'm going to judge. The people of Israel withhold from God because they thought that they would end up with more. God says, no, bring your full tithe and offering and watch me. Watch me and I will provide for you. Israel wanted to know how little they could give to God and God wanted to show them how much he could provide for them. This again, I think if we go back to our theme, the heart of a nation, this shows how far the heart of this people was from God at this time. And why did God want them to give these proper tithes and offering? What was the, the main reason? It was so that the other nations, if you read there, would see that they are blessed. In verse 12, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. What was the purpose? What was the main reason God wanted them to do this? Because he wanted other nations to see that his people were different. They wanted the other nations to be, he wanted the other nations to be drawn to God through his people. And that was the purpose, right? They were to be a light to the nations. And it's not just about giving, it's about what it shows. It's not just about the outward action, but it's about the intention behind it. You can give all the money, you can give all of everything in the world, but if your heart and intention behind it is wrong, it's futile, it's nothing. God wants us, as we read in the New Testament, that to give with a cheerful heart. Right? He wants us to be cheerful givers. So what does this all mean for you and I? Is this just two big accusations against Israel and showing where Israel's at, uh, showing that their heart was, was far from God, showing that the nation was not following what God had intended for them? No, I think there's, there's more to it and I think there's some things that we can take home today, some things that you and I can, can work on and, and try and apply um, in our lives, right? I think there's three things that, as I was reading this, I was like, yep, Daniel, you can work on those things. You can work on those things too, so I hope they will help you. First one is to acknowledge our sin. Right, we saw there in verse 17 that, and later on as well, that Israel seemed to be ignorant to their sin. And they wanted to point the finger not only to others but to God and say, look, actually, God, it's your fault. You're the one that's doing the wrong thing, not me. 
Instead of being ignorant to it or ignoring our sin or blaming or pointing the finger, which feels like the easy thing to do to just get out of it, out of the pressure, let's acknowledge our sin and let's come before God. Confess our sin and he will be faithful to forgive us. Secondly is don't forget. One of the ways in which we can become entrenched in our sin is by forgetting who God is in his nature and being and by forgetting or treating lightly what God has done for us. So friends, let's be passionate in our study of the word and our walk with God. That needs to be a commitment and a priority for you and I. We all get busy. We all have things to do. We all have a lot going on in our lives. But our walk with God needs to be that priority. And I speak as strongly to myself as I do to you. Let's be passionate and intentional with our walk with God. And lastly, don't hold back. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. God wants us to honour him in what we give of our time, our money, our resources, our affections, our attentions. He wants us to give what is due to him. The people of Israel again robbed God by not giving him what was owed. If we want to honour God, we cannot withhold what is owed God. And what is owed God? Psalm 89, 11 says, The heavens of your, are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all it contains, you have founded them. If everything belongs to the Lord, then we need to give everything back. Everything is owed God. And why? What is the purpose as we live this life that acknowledges our sin, live a life that doesn't forget who God is and, and what he's done with us, live a life that is of full sacrifice and honour and service to him? What is the purpose of that? What has God asked us to do that for? So that others may be drawn to him. He wishes that none should perish, but that all should be saved. Friends, the life we live as believers in our nation, our heart and our intention that informs the way that we live, think and act, that shows to others. And if that's a heart that is far from God, that'll show and that'll draw people away from God. If that's a heart that is committed to God and following him, yes, we make mistakes. Yes, we will fall and stumble. But if our heart is for God and for his things, that will draw others to him. That will provide opportunities for us to share and be a light to the nations around us and a light in the nation that we live. So friends, that's, that's Malachi that's our fourth and our fifth dispute. Let me pray and then we'll sing together. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for, for your goodness and your grace. Lord, thank you for your faithfulness to us, Lord. And Father God, we thank you that you always provide a way out for us. Father, there's, there's times when we feel like it, everything is all too much. God, but we know that you have made a way for us. God, we trust in you. God, help us to live lives that, that honour you and serve you. Father, may our bank accounts, may our actions, may our intentions, may our affections, may they be for you, God. Father God, I pray that we would be people that, that draw other people to you. Lord, we want to spend eternity with as many as possible, God, and we know that you want to draw as many to yourself as possible. So God, may we be your service, in your service, Lord, and, and witnesses, God, to those around us, good witnesses, faithful witnesses. Father, thank you for this little book of Malachi and what it can teach us. Go before us in this coming week, Lord, and again, may we honour you in word and deed. Amen. Thanks for listening to the teaching podcast of Calvary Chapel, Newcastle. If you'd like to check out more of our teachings, please visit ccn.org.au forward slash teachings.